Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and verses 10 through 13. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house of Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of of his gods. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by the number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the Masons and the carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the, Lord, of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. 
though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to the first ser- first first service ever of Rockwall Presbyterian Church. Um, we're starting a new sermon series today on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm sure if you spend enough time in the church, you expect that since we're doing a sermon series on Ezra and Nehemiah, that we're also starting a building campaign. And uh, we're going to have pledge cards. Uh, you can pick those up after. No, I'm just kidding. We're not. Actually, it's, uh, it's funny that the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is used that way. Because I don't think that's anything that the book has to do with. I think it's about something far deeper than that. Years ago, I traveled to China, and it was my first time overseas. I'd never really ever been outside of Missouri, come from a small town, and so I thought probably the best thing to do would, of course, be a great idea to have my first overseas trip be with a ministry that smuggles Bibles into China at the Hong Kong border. And so I decided to do it. It sounded fun, got my Bibles in my bag, and I crossed the Hong Kong border, and I got caught. I got caught. After spending three months in a labor camp, I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. (laughs) But I remember we uh, we crossed the border with these Bibles, and I didn't have mine, but the rest of the team got through. We crossed the border, and we had to take an 18-hour train ride to meet this small house church where we were going to deliver the Bibles to. So when we got there, we were led through a few alleyways, these back alleys, and uh, in through these shops, and down through these apartment buildings, and in one door and out the other. It was a maze. I had no idea where I was at. Just trying to keep up. And we get to this apartment building and we go up a few floors and we come across this little, small, cramped little apartment that was unbelievably hot and incredibly muggy. And as we walked into the room, it was filled wall to wall with members of this little house church, just immersed in worship and singing praises to God. And we spent the next nine hours in a worship service where we taught, we prayed together. And we, we sang songs. And at one point, a man came into the room and talked to our leader during the service. And then they had a little private conversation and left. And she just happens to lean over and she says, uh, she goes, yeah, he's the lookout down on the ground floor in case the cops come. It's not, a, it's not legal to worship here. I remember thinking for the first time that worship is dangerous. Worship doesn't necessarily put us in a safe place. And it's not just something we do on Sunday mornings. You see, these friends of mine, they they worship knowing that at any moment they could get caught. And just a few weeks before, another house church in the area had a prayer meeting on the beach, and all of them were put in the hospital because the rest of the villagers came out to beat them and interrupt their prayer meeting. And they worshiped knowing that they could be imprisoned without justice. And yet they still met. And never in my life have I ever seen people so passionate about worshiping God. And I don't just mean singing songs. I mean, they wanted to know how Jesus, this new God they met, they wanted to know how to worship Jesus in every aspect of their life because to them, worship meant something. It was a new identity that was given to them. And in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is exactly what God is trying to teach Israel. Worship may put you in harm's way, Worship may put you in uncomfortable places because worship ultimately wasn't meant to be safe. 
And yet worship above all else, if the story of our Chinese brothers and sisters is true, is that worship is worth it, no matter what it costs. And Ezra picks up Israel's story where Second Chronicles leaves us. At the end of Second Chronicles, Israel is carried off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. The temple and its walls were destroyed and the cities left in ruins. And immediately Ezra 1, verse 1, tells us why. It picks up the story, but it does so through the lens of Jeremiah and his prophecy that is now being fulfilled. So the exodus, or the exile back into Babylon was fulfilling a prophecy that Jeremiah gave in chapter 25 where Israel continued to turn away from, from God and they worshipped other gods and God finally said, I will bring judgment down upon you and I will scatter you among the nations. And he does, and they're scattered. But this particular reference in verse 1 is to Jeremiah 30 where God says, but I won't leave you in exile. I'm actually going to only leave you there for 70 years, but I promise you that I will gather you and bring you back. There will be a remnant that returns and you will rebuild what was destroyed. And during this time in these 70 years, I, I'd imagine there has to be times for Israel that it looked pretty bleak. They'd learned to live a new life in this new country that was not their home and they had to learn to survive. But they also had to be wondering if God is actually going to keep his word. Will he actually stay true to his promises? Because as the years go on, there's no indication that things are going to change and they'll ever be able to get back home. So I'm sure they asked, will God stay true to his promises? Did he just leave us here? Did he abandon us here? I'm sure it was a topic of late night conversations and daydreaming as they wondered, will they die in exile or will they finally be able to have the opportunity to return home? And then in a single moment, everything changes. Out of nowhere, Cyrus, the king of Assyria, which had taken over Babylon, in those 70 years, he created a much bigger empire and he was the most powerful man in the world who ruled the largest empire in history. And he issues a decree and he says that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt and anybody that wants to go back and rebuild it, you're free to go. And I'll make sure that it's financed and the work is completed. And Israel is immediately reminded of its own Proverbs where it says that the king's heart is a stream in the hands of God. And he will guide it wherever he will. But we have this tension because God's promises are being fulfilled in this decree to come back and rebuild the temple. And yet in its fulfillment, it requires a willingness to respond. I think this brings us to a major theme that we'll actually have to wrestle with in many different ways throughout this entire series, which is the fact that God's promises are not without a call to respond. God's promises are not without a call to respond because they're not something you... You just hang on your wall and give cognitive assent to. It's not something you just argue about with somebody that doesn't think the same way as you do. We don't passively receive God's promises because God's promises always entail a call to change your life. And we see this same thing with Israel. For them to embrace God's promises, they had to pack up their life, leave Babylon behind, and take a four-month-long journey. Four months from Babylon to Jerusalem on foot, it was a call to get blisters on their feet, to go hungry when they couldn't find food, to go thirsty when they couldn't find water. They had to trust that this new life they'd established in Babylon, whatever comforts it offered, or whatever opportunities it offered, it was temporary, and they did not belong there. And they had to return to a hard and desolate place that was lying in ruins, 
there's also a heavy spiritual aspect of this call because God is calling them back to a place where they feel ashamed. It's a place that reminds them of their failure. It's a place of sadness. It's a place of devastation. But at the same time, like he always does, that is exactly the place where God wants to meet them. And it's the place where he wants to give them hope and rebuild his people. The call was to return and rebuild. I think we always have to recognize that it's passages like this that make it very clear that embracing God's promises and following him is not easy. And anything that ever presents such a lie is not worth listening to. Because God calls us to places in our lives that we don't want to face and we spend a lot of time ignoring and pretending they don't exist. It's a challenging invitation. It's very challenging. And certainly Israel feels this challenge. You can see it in chapter 2 because it's the headcount of those who return. Those who decide to return is only 42,000 Israelites. Only 42,000 Israelites respond to this call to come home. Now, that might seem like a big number, but during David's time, David had an army of 600,000 fighting men. It's a pittance of people that return compared to all that can, that all that have that invitation. But for some, God's promises weren't as valuable because perhaps they'd set up a new business and they were doing quite well. They had a nice little new group of friends that they enjoyed. Embracing God's promises was way too costly, and maybe they just said, ah, that sounds like a lot of work, going back and rebuilding. I think I'll stay. And we see Israel winnowed down to a faithful few, and when, when they return to the land, the first thing they do is gather together in Jerusalem. They, don't, they go to their villages, but soon they return quickly. And we see it in chapter 3, verse 1. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar to once again offer sacrifices to God amidst this rubble. They rebuild the altar to where they can worship, which makes sense because these are the people that are excited to return. These are the go-getters. These are the ones that are hungry for worship to be reestablished. And since it was the seventh month, they celebrated the Feast of Booths, which is what Israel did on its calendar in the seventh month. And the feast was actually a reminder of Israel living in makeshift tents whenever they were in the wilderness. And so all of Israel would live in these little makeshift tents for seven days. So if you, you can, of course, that you, of course, you can imagine that the excitement would be at an all-time high. Here they are, the Feast of Booze. The timing is perfect. It reminds them of their deliverance from Egypt and how God rescued them. And now they're celebrating it once again. And it's reminding them of their deliverance from Babylon. And sacrifices are once again being made on an altar that has remained desolate for 70 years. And they didn't stop there. They continued the work and they started to lay the foundations of the temple. And they relayed the foundations and they gathered the resources. They organized the workforce. The resources came from far and wide. And the hope was high to once again see this, the beauty of Solomon's temple. So when it was finally completed, Israel gathers once again and they hold a celebration. The priests get dressed up in their robes and they grab their trumpets. The Levites grab their cymbals. And the people gather together and sing, The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, over and over again. And there's a great shout and they give praise to God. But in verse 12, there's a problem. Instead of blowing their trumpets and clanging their cymbals, many of the older Israelites and the older priests 
many of the older Levites and Israelites and head of the father's houses, they're weeping. In the midst of all this joy, they're weeping. They'd seen the glory of the first temple, but these new foundations paled in comparison. And all of their hopes kind of fell short. The glory of what they'd hoped they were building actually fell far short of what they'd hoped for. I think we know this feeling quite well. You have high hopes that marriage life will offer you something and offer you fulfillment and you daydream of what it could look like. But then not too long after that, disappointment creeps in because you realize that the person you married is much harder to love than you ever imagined. Or maybe the exciting prospects of a new job fall apart because you get the job and the pay is great, but you dread going to work every day because your boss is so demanding and difficult and unappreciative. And the question is true of you, that's true of them. It's in these moments that God is asking the question, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Will you still worship me when it doesn't make sense? And certainly for these older men, it didn't make sense at all, and I don't actually blame them. They have questions that they want God to answer. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky. It'd be as as the multitudes would be innumerable. And yet only 42,000 people return. And God promised to establish a king forever on the throne of David, and yet where is their king? And God promised that Israel would be a light to the nations and display his glory. The nations would be gathered at Israel, but why is this new temple so much smaller and its glory is so much less? See, God brings Israel to a place where their expectations are destroyed. He brings them to a place where their expectations of glory and grandeur they had in their minds were broken. And things didn't make sense anymore and they had no idea what God was doing so that he could be, begin to rebuild their expectations. He brings Israel back to this desolate place to reteach them what it actually means to be his people. It's not just to live around the temple and be close to it and think it's great and beautiful and wonderful. They have to learn, they have to relearn how to worship and have their expectations shaped around what God's promises actually are and what it means to actually embrace them. Because they went into exile because they never were willing to turn to God as their one joy and their delight because they kept turning to other gods. They never actually embraced God's promises. They embraced all the other promises in the world. God was patient through 500 years of kings that chased after every other god, pursued riches, and pursued glory and prominence apart from that which God would have for them. And kings never taught their people how to worship because they were so distracted by their wealth and they gloried in the beauty of the temple. And sure, they loved the brick and mortar, but they never actually learned to love the God that wanted to meet them there. And I think there's still a part of these old men that are crying this, at this worship service because it's a struggle to not put your confidence in appearances because they don't want to be in a position where they have to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know where you're going and how you're going to make all of these promises come together. And that's exactly where God wants them to be because it's actually where he can begin to say to him, don't make that same mistake again that your forefathers made that brought you in exile in the first place. 
You're worried about brick and mortar, but look around you. Worship has once again been established. And I am with my people. Because when you had everything before, you wouldn't turn to me and you rejected me. And so now I've taken everything away from you and to see if you will worship me when you have nothing else. And he tells them to put the trumpets back up to their mouth and grab their cymbals and to worship God when it doesn't make sense and it's hard. And God brings Israel to this place where their expectations are broken so that all they have left is to hope that what he's actually doing is something new. Something new. And it's far better than anything they ever wanted in the first place. Because God stripped them of the things they were confident in so that they could learn to actually hope in him for the first time. Those are challenging words that God will rip the comforts out of our hands so that we will finally reach out our arms to embrace him. So what is, what is the significance of this passage for us? We're thousands of years removed from this story. So what does it have to teach us today? Because we're not building walls and altars and temples. It seems far removed from our context, but I don't actually think it is because I think what's true of them is true of us. I think what God was trying to show these exiles that returned home is ultimately the same for us. And it's the fact that he's calling us to go to desolate places and establish worship where it doesn't exist. God's calling us to go to desolate places and establish worship where it doesn't exist. So what does that mean for you? I think Jesus wants to build worship in your life in the places that you think he's powerless and unable to change. You think his promises don't really apply anymore. He wants to build worship in the place where lust has reigned for so long and created rubble in your relationships and in your life. He wants to build worship in your marriage where passion and love have long since been snuffed out. And the idea of self-giving love in your marriage is about as real as a fairy tale. He wants to build worship where greed has left your finances in ruins. He invites us into these desolate places where we feel powerless to change. Where we feel his promises no longer apply and we feel completely helpless so that he can actually teach us what it means to hope in him. Because we will not do it otherwise. And it's only in these places that we learn to hope in Christ alone and that God's promises aren't just... uh, bumper sticker, but that God's promises are meant to be buried deep in our hearts. And the reason this is important is that if we aren't willing to treasure Jesus above all else, then we'll ever never actually really learn to obey his command for us as a people. Because the Great Commission is a call to go to the desolate places and establish worship where it does not exist. And how can we go into a world and try to obey this command and expect Jesus to be precious to others if he's not precious to us? How can we go into desolate places if we're not willing to let him into the desolate places in our own lives? How can we expect our children to worship and embrace Jesus if we don't ourselves when he's given us to them to teach them how? 
And this is what he's calling us to as a church, not only to step into desolate, worshipless places in our own lives, but in the lives of the world around us. His great command is to take worship to the world and build worship in the desolate places of our neighbors and community where it doesn't exist. This week we had the opportunity to uh, go and... um, uh, to the Hartgrove's house and help them clean up their yard, but we also helped out their neighbor who was elderly, lived with his father who's 90 years old and um, was a World War II vet and both in relatively poor health, and so they couldn't clean up their yard, which was just filled with debris. And so we, we gathered there and uh, we cleaned up their yard and um, the Hartgrove's yard, but then there was two houses down that um, Matt Wiley had met the night the night the storm happened. It was a single mom living with her daughter in this house. And in the backyard, it was completely, this house got hit extremely hard and it was, uh, the backyard was just um, rubble. And we decided once we got the yard zone to go over there and so we started pulling out the Barbies for her daughter and setting them up in nice little stacks so they could have them and taking all this debris out and clearing it up and clearing it out. And it was, it was a tremendous amount of work that got done. And yes, yesterday, Matt texted me and he said, I talked to that um, single mom again. She texted me and she said, um, uh, or he, he texted me. And when they were talking, she said, it was so hard to go back to the house. It was so hard to go back to that house because it was so painful. But I knew I had to. And she said, we got back there and we saw the Hartgrove's yard and their neighbor's yard. She said, then I walked around the back of my house and I saw the Barbies lined up for my daughter and she was so excited. She said, I saw all the work that was done to clean the backyard and she said, I saw beauty in the midst of the devastation. And she said, I am overwhelmed by the love that I have been shown. What a marvelous and beautiful thing if all of these new empty seats that have been created were filled with such stories, were filled where they see beauty in the midst of devastation and they begin to feel hope and joy once again. Today as we gather, it's the start of a new year. It's a time when resolutions are made and people begin to dream and reimagine a better life for themselves. It's a time when people kind of feel a little bit of the devastation in their lives and some of the emptiness, and they commit to trying to rebuild something new. But today I challenge you to commit yourself to building worship in your life. I challenge you to commit yourself to finding places in your life where worship doesn't exist and something else is far more precious and important than Jesus. I... We can lose a few pounds and we can join a gym or eat gluten-free and save more money. There's plenty of things. But above all else, I actually invite you to experience God because I think he wants to meet you in a far more meaningful place. It's actually the place where you don't make resolutions because you have no idea what to actually do. You have no idea how to change. You have no idea how to grow and to let worship fill your life once again. 
These are the places where God wants to meet you. It's the places where your resolutions don't matter because you actually feel powerless and hope left long ago. But like these exiles, that is the invitation before you to return to a desolate place so that Jesus can teach you what it means to hope and worship him alone amidst the rubble. And for you as well to learn to say, I now see beauty in the midst of devastation and the love that I have been shown is overwhelming. Let's pray. Jesus, we... We often want to stay in exile and be concerned with our own welfare. Your promises aren't always easy to embrace. The call to follow you and pick up our cross is challenging and difficult. But I pray, Father, that you would come to us by the power of your Spirit. And you would stir our hearts just as you did those returning exiles to return to the desolate places so that worship of you might be established and you above all else would be most precious to us, not just as individuals, but collectively as a church so that we might take you to the world and participate in the work that you have given us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.